You're listening to a download from North San Juan. Listen again. The situation is that the platform is completely on fire from sea level to top. Uh, the structure is uh, collapsing and it is uh, total fire. It was a beautiful day, a lovely summer's day. The sea was relatively calm, as calm as you get in the North Sea, just a lazy swell going through. Just just before 10 o'clock, there was the god-awfulest bang. All of the ceiling tiles came down, and uh, this very noisy platform suddenly became deathly quiet. The inferno and the smoke was so much that the people, they tried all the exit doors, but, you know, they were beaten back at every opportunity. The decision was made for me, it was roasting. You know, it was fry or jump, so it was jump. I just recall the, the almighty fireball that come right across the hill of it. We dived to the ground and pff, it passed. Didn't know what was happening or what to do and we just jumped off. It was uh, obviously the, the biggest fire I, I'd ever seen in my life. Um, it was just absolutely stupendous. I'd never seen anything like it. You could see that just the chaos, the lack of direction, that people were just milling about, hoping for somebody was going to tell them something. A voice from the back, which I recognised the voice, was a, a chap who never ever made it, Bobby Adams. And uh, Bobby uh, very clearly said that, uh, don't worry, everybody's fear, we're all fear. That's actually quite mm, comforting. Did you know that you're not the only coward on board? That everybody's going to have fear. Uh, the fear of dying, or the fear of the unknown. 25 years ago, on the 6th of July, 1988, tragedy struck in the North Sea. 167 men were killed when a series of explosions and fire ripped through the Piper Alpha platform. To this day, it remains the world's worst offshore disaster. 25 years on, this programme will tell the stories of those on board, everyone touched by the tragedy, those they left behind. Piper Alpha was a platform 120 miles northeast of Aberdeen. Production on board started in 1976. It was owned and operated by Occidental Petroleum. The first blast happened around 10pm on the night of the 6th of July. Later, investigations found a valve that controlled the flow of gas had been removed. When the shift changed, the new crew weren't told it had been taken out. They pressurised the pipe, which caused a massive release of gas. A series of blasts and the massive blaze they created completely destroyed what had once stood there. It's been described by many as the night the North Sea caught fire. 165 of the lives lost that night were men who had been on board. Two people died on the fast rescue boat, the Silver Pit. 61 men survived. One of them was Stan McLeod. It was a beautiful day, a lovely summer's day. The sea was relatively calm, as calm as you get in the North Sea, just a lazy swell going through. And um, uh, just just before 10 o'clock, there was the god-awfulest bang and um, shook us up. All of the ceiling tiles came down. You know, desks, desks were emptied. It was a, a, a real shake. And uh, this very noisy platform suddenly became deathly quiet. We honestly didn't know what had happened, but common sense told us that it was... Yeah, pretty heavy to severe. We had um, uh, oil running down the legs and the members. There was bits of of smouldering pipe lagging. There was a lot of smoke around. And it was getting progressively worse as the seconds went by. I'm not talking about minutes, I'm talking about seconds. It was getting progressively worse all the time. 
we, we had a diver in the decompression chamber and we had to get him out. There was burning oil dropping down on us and there was um, very heavy smoke. When we finally got the diver out of the chamber, which was really by the skin of our teeth, we had to um, uh, evacuate towards the northwest corner, which was the only, only pathway open to us then. And when we got to the northwest corner, um, the divers were coming back down and they said, basically, Stan, it's, it's, it's absolute chaos up there, it's, it's, it's carnage. We can't get to the lifeboat stations. And um, uh, we sort of assessed the situation and uh, we only had one choice and that was to go over the side. Uh, we tied a rope off onto the guardrail and, um, and started to go, to go down the rope. Um, we were very lucky because we had a lot of vessels in the area there was a lot of work going on and a fast rescue boat came up and left us in no uncertain terms that we were to get off there ASAP and um, the lads were, were climbing down the rope getting onto the, onto the plus 20 foot level and then jumping into the water and the fast rescue boat started to pick us up that was in the early Early stages must have been about five, about five, ten minutes maybe after the initial blast. It took us over to the silver pit, and uh, then there was a massive explosion, which then started to do some serious damage. Bob Ballantyne also survived the tragedy, but has sadly since passed away. We spoke to him 15 years ago, when North Sand marked the 10th anniversary. I had just finished my shift at nine o'clock, and for not part when I was going to do a bit of studying that night because I was studying at the Open University. I went up to the restroom uh, to pour myself a, a novel team. So about 10 o'clock, that was the first explosion we heard of. And within minutes, the recreation room had uh, filled up with smoke. Not complete darkness at that time. It took a couple of minutes before the lights went out. There was no panic. It was chaos. Uh, lack of sense of direction. Things had fallen off the wall. We went back to, went back to the room and we're going to go up to the canteen area, which just so happened it became the muster area. So we went up, to, went up there. You could see that even within minutes that people had gotten life jackets and survival suits. The initial explosion knocked out all the services we had, which made it rather eerie, quite frightening, because we'd lost the tannoy system that may have been able to direct you. We'd lost the compressors. Very noisy, I'm sure, but you get used to that noise. Although I said there was a there was an explosion going, there was a terrible silence in the platform. I, I, I describe it, and it, it helps me. I describe it as an angry silence because we'd lost all communication. But I think it, you know, it didn't take us too long for to see the, the enormity of the situation. So we went back to our cabin, put on our survival suits, and as we went up to the muster area, we could see the chaos. I like a direction that people were just milling about, hoping for somebody who was going to tell them something. Somebody, I've seen their uh, personnel. One person uh, expressed that fear, and he said how frightened he was. There was a, a voice from the back, which I recognised the voice. It was a, a chap who never ever made that, Bobby Adams. And uh, Bobby uh, very clearly said that, uh, don't worry, everybody's fear. We're all fear. And that was actually, actually quite... Comforting. Did you know that you're not the only coward on board? That everybody's got that fear. 
the fear of dying or the fear of the unknown. Bob's wife, Pat, was at home in their Aberdeen flat that night. She always struggled with him working offshore. I was very conscious that it wasn't a safe environment. And in those days, there was a dot at the telly at the end of the night's broadcasting. So I would wait up to the dot because the very last thing in the dot on Grampian was the late night headlines. And then, of course, it would all finish. So I would wait up for that, which meant I was usually very tired the next morning, but that was just the way of it. The one night I didn't do this, I was um, helping out Bob. He was doing an open university degree course and this was the music component and it had arrived in two, a whole volume of long playing records or vinyl records, but the big ones, the 10 inch ones, or maybe there were 12 at that time. And so what I was doing was um, I was putting them onto cassette for him and I was also making a lot of notes for him because I'd studied music, so I just thought I could maybe help him out a bit when he was listening to all of this so that I could send it all offshore because I couldn't really send the records. And uh, so I was so involved in what I was doing that this one night I did not have the television on, so I didn't see the late news. I finished it quite late and I went to bed. And I got woken up the next morning... I actually couldn't tell you the time. It was probably around about 6am, maybe 6.30. It turned out it was the police and they asked if Robert Ballantyne lived there and I said yes. And then they told me that there had been this big um, incident. But he was okay, he was one of the lucky ones. And I really didn't know what on earth they were talking about. So when they said he was one of the lucky ones, I thought, Ah, he's probably broken his leg, so he'll be okay. Because I had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't explain it clearly or or anything like that. My name's Doug Duffy, and in 1988, I was a detective sergeant in the CID at uh, Grampy Police. It started for me, uh, like many of the team, being... Uh, called from bed about three o'clock in the morning and told to be ready to be picked up and taken to Dice Airport um, because there had been an offshore incident and that's all we knew at that time. And then when we was picked up, we were told uh, en route there that this was a big incident and there was thought to be uh, a massive loss of life and that our job was to set up a temporary mortuary in order to receive the bodies that would be incoming uh, from the incident. Alan Reid was in charge of communications at NHS Grampian at the time and had been in the job just six months. I got a call from the NE Department of Aberdeen Royal Infirmary around about, I suppose, 10.45-ish to say that there was something happening offshore that had a couple of calls from journalists but no one really knew what was happening and perhaps I'd better come in to help them out. And that was uh, about a quarter eleven o'clock or so on the Wednesday night. Jake Malloy is the regional organiser of the offshore division of the RMT Union, what was known as the OILC. However, back in 1988, he was working in the North Sea himself and remembers how quickly word was spreading offshore. I was on Shell's Brent Delta platform working, and I finished at nine o'clock that night. Um, got showered up, changed, and then went downstairs for my phone call. Uh, we had a lot of times for our calls and you sat in the queue till your time came up. Mine was just on ten o'clock. Um phoned home, had a chat with uh, my wife and 
come out the box and come along the corridor, heading back to the accommodation, which took you past the radio room. And um, the old radio up, Alex, was working that night and always stopped and had a chat with Alex because we were talking on the radio a lot during the day. Um, and he he was tuning in, he was listening to broadcasts and he said to me, "There sounds like there's some kind of bother in Piper Alpha. Um, I'm hearing reports there's been an explosion and up to six people could be dead, which was shocking in itself. Um, albeit for a lot of workers offshore, certainly platform workers, we... We always thought that if there was ever going to be a problem, it would be Piper or either that or the Black Pig, as it used to be known, the Thistle. So I'd gone upstairs, and again at the time it was, was four-man accommodation. The rest of the guys were, were in their beds reading or listening to the radio. And um, I told them what Alec had said about the, the Piper going up and possibly six people having been killed. And we all reflected on people that we knew on Piper because despite the fact they talk about the oil industry being a big industry, it's, it's relatively small and it's the people, same people moving around. Um, and that was that. I mean, lights out usually about half ten because you were six o'clock start in the morning. Uh, and we got up to f- hear what was coming out, the full horror. Um, we were only getting bits and pieces at the time because, as I say, it was radio... That was all we had. Onshore, they were relying on Radio 2. The world would find out later that in the middle of the burning North Sea, one man was capturing the only images we would ever see of the Piper Alpha completely engulfed by fire. On July the 6th, 1988, Yorkshire filmmaker Paul Beruf was based at RAF Lossiemouth. He was six months into a year-long stint with 202 Squadron, filming helicopter rescue missions for a TV documentary. The crew received a call alerting them to a fire on Piper Alpha. Paul says they had no idea of the scale of disaster they were flying towards. It was just before quarter to ten that evening and um, they said that they were just getting reports of an incident on a, an oil platform uh, 120 miles out in the North Sea. Uh, they thought it was a fire and would I like to come? I said, of course I'd come. I mean, I didn't want to miss anything. And uh, The helicopter was on the... Um, on the stand with his rotors running, uh, we jumped out of the car straight into the helicopter and took off. At that time, they didn't know what we were going to. They just said they had a report of a fire on an oil platform uh, and uh, they'd been scrambled to um, to see what it was. We'd been airborne about three or four minutes and uh, we were listening to the radio and the Nimrod reconnaissance aircraft from nearby Kinloss had just taken off. If the RAF get a, a, an incident that they think could escalate, they will send um, a reconnaissance aircraft to act as what they call top cover. It's like a mobile air traffic control, uh, and he can communicate from long distances back to RAF search and rescue headquarters in the UK. He'd just taken off about the same time as we had from uh, Kinloss, and he was flying over our position when he radioed that he could see the fire. Um, this was just off the Murray coast at this time. We all sort of looked at each other, and uh, I, I remember the pilot coming on the headphone saying, did you hear what I just heard him say? And we all said, yes. Uh, he said he can see the fire. He could see the fire from 100 miles away, so we knew then it was something serious. Obviously, as we got nearer, we could see the sky changing from, from, from blackness to orange, 
and uh, within about 15 minutes we uh, we were on scene. Uh, we couldn't really believe it when we first saw it. There was little information coming through from the location. We didn't know how many people were on the platform, uh, how many had abandoned the platform, if there were any people in the water. And we had a quick circle of the area. We, we, we couldn't get within a mile of the platform. It was so hot. The um, fuselage on the helicopter was beginning to, well, not burn, but it was getting really hot. I, I remember touching the side of it, and I could feel the heat. And we were, only, we were a mile away at this point, so you can imagine how serious it was. I mean, flames by now were shooting 300-plus feet up into the air. What we didn't know at the time, there were actual people on, still on the platform. I mean, the instructions were for them in any emergency to go up onto the heli deck and wait for helicopter evacuation. I mean, we didn't think anybody would still be on it because it was just so, so burning so much. Uh, but afterwards, I learned from some of the rescuers that they'd actually seen the yellow helicopter going past, so obviously they were there when we were approaching. The next thing we heard was uh, a tasking to go to the Silver Pit, which was the Piper's uh, standby safety vessel. She was lying just uh, a, a mile off the uh, off the Piper, and some of the survivors had actually swum from the platform uh, from Piper through burning seas to the Silver Pit. And the silver pit at the pot at this time was acting as a recovery vessel. Uh, I think there must have been about 25 persons on board by the time we got there. We were instructed to go to the silver pit to winch th the three most serious casualties on board. Uh, I remember we had very, very much difficulty in finding the silver pit because of the, the the light from the fire was so bright that it was affecting the pi pilot's vision. Uh, eventually, through Silver Pit using searchlights, we managed to identify him, and uh, we uh, we went to the stern of the ship and um, started winching the uh, three survivors on board in stretchers. By this time, you know the, the fire was just uh, apocalyptic. That's all I can say. I mean, I've seen lots of fires in my my time, but nothing like this. You know, we couldn't believe it that it was as bad as as all that, the, the, the rig was completely engulfed in flames uh, and so was the sea around it. Um, we were surprised that people were still alive, you know, but there, here we were on the stern of the uh, silver pit now, winching three of the survivors on board. Uh, Bob Poutney, our winchman, got one the first guy up on the stretcher uh, and put him on board, and I remember putting the camera down because... Um, there was no one else apart from myself and the sound recordist on board and the winch operator to, uh, to to look after these guys. We tried to make them comfortable. We then headed off for the Tharas, which was another vessel lying about a mile off Piper Alpha. Uh, Tharas was brought into the North Sea initially to act as a, an emergency vessel. It was like a mobile fire engine. It had giant... Uh, fire jets on it and and a hospital which that night actually um, did save a lot of lives and it was so handy it actually was where it was he was firing his uh, three or four big cannon jets of water towards Piper towards the fire but uh, they were just evaporating in the heat it was so intense uh, we took our three casualties to the Tharas and uh, 
into the hospital there. I remember getting off the helicopter with the Saman because I could see that that was going to be the sort of centre of operations. My helicopter, Rescue 138, then went off to look for further survivors and I stayed on, on Tharos with, uh, with Mike Riley and we started filming uh, the comings and goings of uh, more casualties and uh, other people coming in from the mainland. There's by now a constant stream of helicopters bringing police out and doctors from Aberdeen. Uh, so this was, from my point of view as a, a documentary filmmaker, the ideal, ideal place to be. And uh, I spent probably two or three hours on Tharos uh, filming all this. I had a very good view of Piper. Uh, it was literally only a mile away, so I could actually film, film its dying moment, so to speak. Uh, but also I could see what was going on with casualties and... Uh, it was also, Tharos was also being used as a temporary morgue. They were bringing bodies on board as well. You have to st sort of be quite calm and collected, in, e even though the situation is, is falling apart around you. If there is a situation where more hands need to get to the pump, so to speak, I will put the camera down and help, and that's what I did that night. But I was quite calm about it, I think. People always say, put the bloody camera down in times of stress and distress and I think it's important that we do record these events. It wasn't until I got my footage back onto that news later that day that the whole country and world realised how bad it was being behind the camera all night and into the early hours of the next morning and uh, yes I was recording, I knew it was big but I'm just recording onto a small 60mm film and it wasn't until we got the film into the film editing room and we started watching it that I realised the full extent of what I'd got. I remember watching the negatives come through the drying section and every frame on the negative was a bright orange. Um, and I knew then that it was something quite extraordinary uh, to see that much fire um, on my film negatives. I, I do think that the public should should... Uh, hear what these guys went through, how anybody could get through all that. And, and as I said earlier, I've seen lots and lots of disasters, but how anyone can actually survive that is just a miracle, and these guys need to be listened to and listen to their great stories. Within a matter of hours, word had reached the House of Commons in London, where North East MP Alex Salmond was working. Now Scotland's First Minister, he remembers hearing the breaking news. I was in the House of Commons. I think, if I remember correctly, I was just come out of the chamber and it wasn't immediately clear the extent of, I mean, it was an incident in the North Sea and it's something which uh, you know, being a North East of Scotland MP, being an oil economist before that, I was actually quite used to to incidents being reported in the North Sea you know, that, that's uh, then and to a lesser extent now, uh, not an unusual occurrence uh, and then the first pictures came through uh, and the first information of the extent of the, the carnage. And I don't suppose anybody will ever forget uh, who was around then, the, the, the pictures and the, and the nature of the extent of the disaster. Graham Page was working as an A&E doctor at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. I took a decision to come in and in view of the uncertainty of the situation, I took a decision to activate the, the major plan very early on so that uh, if it turned out to be nothing, well and good, 
Um, but if it did turn out to be something, then we would have everybody in place ready. And um, we didn't get the first casualties in until about half past three or thereby. As the night unfolded, because the media were beginning to get pictures from a distance, and uh, we realised that this was a fairly major explosion with a fairly significant number of casualties. We didn't at that point know that um, how many people were dead, but we had our fears even at, at that very early point that a large number of people were probably dead. We, we saw a large amount of uh, significant burns when the casualties did come in um, and quite a, a, a large number of severe facial burns, which was um, pretty horrific. Trish Barron's husband, Billy, was one of those who survived. Speaking 15 years ago on the 10th anniversary, she recalls the moment she received the phone call telling her he was safe. So I've just come off the wreck. Will you come and pick me up? Don't stop inside the hospital. Just sit outside the road. But I didn't do that. I just went right into the hospital. And I could see him coming across. And he got into the car and he just says, let's get out of here. When we got back home, he says, I'll have to go back to the hospital. So I took him back. Then the police said we had to go to the skiing do. And I didn't realise how bad the accident was until I saw all the boys coming in. Some without shoes, some without jackets. Then I knew I was something really bad. I was still in my pyjamas. I just put my coat on top because I was taken out to my bed, you see. Well, when he came across the car, I just seen two white eyes. His face was jet black and he looked dirty and grubby. And on the way down the road, I said, what's my sword? It's just an accident. Then we went back up to him. It's more than an accident. He says the rig was on fire, and that was all I knew for months and months. Why he never ever told me how he got off. Maybe he just wanted to forget there and then. One of the men who died that night was 50-year-old Ian Galanders. His body was never recovered. His widow Anne still lives with the memory of what happened that day. In the morning, when I had the radio alarm set, when I woke up. I went through to check that Yvonne was awake, came back through, and it was then I just sat in the bed and I came through about what had happened on the piper. I realised when she came through and asked, you know, what rig was Dad on, that I'd been just sitting there, sort of numb, and and hoping maybe that something had happened, that he wasn't on it, (laughs) just vain hope. I said, yes, it is, but I'll go and check to make sure, you know. And I phoned Wood Group first, and it was still their night service, so they said to phone Occidental. When I phoned Occidental, when I finally got through, they couldn't tell me anything. And I got back to Wood Group after that, just to make sure that when the day staff were in, I just confirmation that he was definitely on it. I knew he was but there was just a vain hope that they might say no and that something out of the usual had happened and he'd been sent another rig and hadn't come home in between which would have been the usual thing. But that was the way it was. So I then of course Occidental, they couldn't tell me anything and I was given a 
an emergency number to phone. And I was trying that number for about an hour and a half and couldn't get through, couldn't get through. And eventually I did. And, of course, you can't, they can't tell you anything. The first thing they do is ask you questions. When he went and put age and all the rest of it, any identification marks, all this sort of thing. And then they said, well, we can't tell you anything at the moment, and but we'll get back to you if we know anything. But it could be a very long time. And that was it. The policeman came to the door at six o'clock and asked him in. So he sat down with us all and he just, you know, said that Ian was missing, presumed dead. And I remember thinking, well, I've got to stay calm. I've got to tell them anything he needs to know because he said there was some questions he'd need to ask in case it was of any help, in case he was found. He did say that uh, you realise, of course, that there's probably no chance, you know, now that... And I said, yes, I realise that. After the fires were out and the sea had calmed, police had to start the heartbreaking process of recovering bodies. Doug Duthie was moved from the makeshift mortuary in Dice. I was there for a couple of months and then we went offshore because they decided to lift the accommodation modules from the seabed, which was an amazing, amazing feat of engineering. But they lifted the two accommodation modules and as soon as they were on deck, they were about the size of John Lewis and and, and George Street there. Uh, When that was brought on board, then we were able to, to make our first entry and we could see how many... The chaps were still in there, like, you know. I don't think any, and I was just one member of a large team, I don't don't think any officer had ever seen this amount of fatalities or had to deal with this type of thing ever before. There had been helicopter crashes and other disasters, but not on the scale that Piper Alpha. We went to Florida and there we spent uh, some time removing the bodies from inside the... Uh, the accommodation model, and under the uh, the direction of a, a, an engineer there, uh, Ramsey Martin, who amazingly got us all through the operation without even a cut or a scratch. And the reason I say that, you have to remember, these modules were upside down. They'd been inverted on the seabed, so we were actually working with all the equipment above our head bolted to the floor, and we were walking on the ceilings. So, I mean, it was a dangerous environment, but he got us through without any injuries, and we covered, recovered in excess of 70 bodies from inside the module. The lads that weren't recovered were those possibly on the seabed or, or had uh, disappeared in the fire because it was so intense. So we were able to recover everyone that was in the module. I mean, I I do feel pride for uh, everyone that was involved in the, the body recovery and the repatriation uh, of the chaps to, because people needed closure. We knew that as long as we could not find uh, a body and get it repatriated, then those who were nearest and dearest would hold out false hopes that that loved one had managed to swim to safety or was still floating or had got onto a raft. Um, so most of the people got closure. Of course, as we know, there were some bodies not recovered and, and that must have been a dreadful after effect. Bob Ballantyne remembered having a huge feeling of guilt 
a feeling he expressed to his wife Pat and Ian's widow Anne. When you start analysing or on reflection on how you survived that, right, uh, there's a couple of things that are terribly upsetting that you didn't know within yourself, that you were so selfish for life, that you, you hung on to it. But also what then manifests itself is a feeling of guilt. Why did you survive it? And other people never survived it because you, you think that other people are more worthy of it. Uh, there were some grandfathers there. There was lads who had just been married. So you wanted, you wanted to actually change places with them because if you felt that they were actually more worthy of life than you were. Be, because you're feeling guilty, there was a need for me to phone up widows for exactly tell them that uh, their husbands didn't die in vain, that their husbands was fighting for survival, that they too were escaping. As far as I was concerned, he was an absolute total hero because of the way he got off, because of, you know, he, he was the sort of person who, even in the most deadliest, dangerous moments of his life, would have words of comfort for other people because that was just what he was like. And I remember being thinking to myself, my God, you know, anybody that got off that rig should have been given some sort of heroic status because what, what they did was just incredible. I was always afraid of seeing the widows are a bit apprehensive uh, how they would see me uh, that had survived and their husbands had me survived that other boyfriends, other sons uh, had me survived it and I had once I'd met a number of widows uh, the, the, these fears were unfounded when you talk to the, the widows <clears throat> what had been lacking and that was any information personal information about their husband, did he know where he was and stuff like that, right? So there's a tremendous comfort, I think, that knowing that someone had seen them and how they were, uh, and I could tell them that. Uh, and that helped me as well. Two days after the disaster, um, the phone rang, and this turned out to be Bob. Oh, I don't know, I was so pleased to hear from him. It was just that first contact with somebody that I'd been with them. It meant so much to me. I remember, you know, the gladness in my heart. And I remember saying to him, you got off. And he said, yes. And I, I just said, oh, I'm so pleased for you. I was just really so pleased that he got off that rig. Some, you know, that some of them got off was marvellous, but somebody that I knew of and, you know, had been with Ian and then he'd got off. Uh, you know, he was telling me how they'd been together trying to, get off and, and the, the company was in. He got separated from them before they, just near the end and um, obviously they went one way and Bob went the other and they, he ended up going down a rope. You know, he was telling me how they'd, they'd, they'd gone back to the cabin and Ian had been having a shower and went back to make sure he was, knew what was happening and uh, as I say, they tried to get off. They finally got, Bob got separated from the rest. So I think I think those that were separated from Bob, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong, but having listened to the evidence and having, you know, read through the reports and things, trying to figure out, you know, from the point of view what had happened, where Ian might have got to, I think, you know, that when they got separated from Bob, that it's every chance that that uh, explosion that caught the rescue boat caught those that had been separated from Bob who were probably heading towards the other leg.
The shock and sadness among many relatives soon turned to anger. Aberdeen MP Frank Doran. Well, I did a lot of work with families. Well, there were really two areas of work uh, that, that I did. One was um, on the safety side. I tabled endless questions in, in the House of Commons. Um, but the other areas was working with the families and relatives. And you know, the sense of shock and dismay was uh, was uh, understandable and very, very difficult uh, to handle. And I went to various meetings, made contact with people, tried to help with individual problems. I think the most important thing I did, though, was to, was a, was to take a group of uh, family members uh, down to the House of Commons. Um, we had a special meeting um, with them uh, when Neil Kinnock was leader and Neil had agreed to meet the families and the survivors. Tony Blair was then um, my boss, as it were, because he, he I, I had become the junior energy spokesperson and, and Tony was uh, become the, 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 the main shadow secretary of state for energy. And we had a... Um, a meeting with them, with the survivors, and with Neil and uh, and Tony in the in the shadow uh, shadow cabinet room, which is one of the grand offices in the in the House of Commons. It made me more active in wanting to make sure that it all hadn't just happened for nothing. I hope that you know we have what we've done over the years has helped other people, and that it's been you know, helpful for the future as well. That's, that's, that's all we can hope for. I certainly hope it's happened, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, today, the 19th of January, 1989, marks the opening of part one of my inquiry, the Cullen Inquiry, into the circumstances of the accident on Piper Alpha and its cause. I have been given the responsibility of reporting to the Secretary of State on the circumstances of the accident and its cause, together with any observations and recommendations which I think fit to make with a view to the preservation of life and the avoidance of similar accidents in the future. Lord Cullen's 13-month inquiry led to a radical overhaul of safety practices. His changes are still in place now. He's always maintained a silence over his report, but he broke that silence at a conference in Aberdeen last month to mark the 25th anniversary. In all, 106 changes were recommended by Lord Cullen and all accepted by the industry. As I dug down into the background of what happened, I discovered it was not just a matter of technical or human failure As is often the case, such failures are indicators of underlying weaknesses in the management of safety. In the case of Piper Alpha, management shortcomings emerged in a variety of forms. For example, there was no clear procedure for shift handovers. The permit-to-work system was inadequate, but so far as it went, it had been habitually and frequently departed from. Training monitoring and auditing had been poor and the lessons of a previous relevant accident had not been followed through. Evacuation procedures had not been practiced adequately and there had not been an adequate assessment of the potential major hazards or measures for controlling them. A glaring example was the risk of a high-pressure gas fire. The consequences would be grave for the structural integrity of the platform, for the safety of personnel, and for the means of evacuation and escape. The gas pipelines would take hours to depressurize, and this, of course, became a dreadful reality 
on the night of the disaster. Lord Callan's report identified a conflict at the Department for Energy, which was responsible for both production and safety in the North Sea. The latter would become the charge of the Health and Safety Executive. Chair Judith Hackett says 25 years on, industry must continue to learn lessons from Piper Alpha. There's more and more opportunities for us to learn lessons and to to recognise that um, unless we do that, unless we truly embed that ability to learn from one another, we will constantly live with the threat of history repeating itself. Maureen Henderson lost her husband David in the tragedy. She was pregnant with their daughter Kerry at the time. Kerry was born eight days after the disaster and never met her dad. Both mum and daughter have helped to raise money for the Piper 25 campaign. It's to restore and maintain the memorial garden at Hazelhead Park. Speaking at the garden, Maureen admitted it's as painful now as it was 25 years ago. I do come up here quite often to reflect and I sit and speak to myself. I'm quite bad for that now <laughs> when I come up here. Uh, well, I'm not really speaking to myself, I'm speaking to my husband. He hears me. Well, I hope he does. There was a lot of men lost their lives that day. Not just husbands that people lost, it was fathers and sons and in some cases some grandas. I've been saying I'm one of the lucky ones. I did get my husband. If you think that's lucky, well, okay. Uh, there was quite a few of them that didn't get their husbands, and they are the remains that they were uh, had are in that memorial statue, and it's somewhere for them to come and reflect and lay flowers down, because obviously they haven't anywhere to go. I still miss my husband to this day. He was my only love. Because I had Kerry eight days after the disaster, I think uh, her important birthdays, her 18th and her 21st, that was the hardest for me. That was the hardest for me. 25 years, uh, it's, it's like your silver wedding anniversary, is it? I, I have learned to cope with it. Life has to go on, is it? My husband would have been so, so proud of Kerry, and I'm so proud of Kerry. He would really be so proud if he was here with her today, she would have been daddy's little girl. <laughs> you forget briefly things seem normal and then bang, it comes back again. Somebody might uh, phone and is there any possibility could they have got stranded somewhere or be picked up or that hope is there but you know that it's just a vain hope, you know, that it's just not going to happen. I would say the likelihood of another Piper Alpha, or certainly an incident on the scale of Piper Alpha, is remote. But you can never say never, because the hardware is only as good as the people that are operating it. Just for the want of an ignition source, you could have had another Piper Alpha quite easily. And, as I say, there's been several since, where through luck, rather good management, the installation and the people on it have survived. But I would never say never. I would, I would like to think we will never see it again, but I would never say never. The lads who died in the paper, Alfred, the ones who I knew, I still talked to them and, uh, when I got to the memorial. And I don't expect an answer for them. Uh, I'm not that silly. 
but it's comforting for the Totter lads and say that you know, they're still remembered and how much I miss them and how you know, time has moved on but uh, they're still dear to us and still part of our life although they are dead I still have great admiration for the men that was on that rig that night and I have great, great feelings for their nearest and dearest who lost them when the risers went on the platform and the platform was engulfed in flames, that is an image that I'll never, never get rid of. And that was the one. I vividly remember seeing the, the bump to hug the, the, the paper afterwards. I was in a rig close by her, right after it, and I looked at that every day. Every crew change, it flew right over it, and that's what my vivid memory is, this black bump to skeleton on beautiful summer days. It just looks so sad. You live your life, and we've all got on with our lives and done whatever we had to do. And uh, but when it comes to the bit each year, it, it, you know, it's always there. It's always there, and it, each year just feels as if it was just the day before. It's just branded the mind. <laughs> still remember everybody, you know what I mean? In some cases it's like yesterday, in other cases it's a long time ago, um, a different life. Um, but when you think about the people, no, it could be last week. Spend all your time waiting. North Sound 1.